Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker. I'm joined here by my co-host, my mortgage broker, and my buddy, Nick. (laughs) How's it going, man? What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. It's going well, man. It's going well. We got a good episode lined up today. What are we talking about? Today, we are going to be talking about the top and bottom performing markets in Canada by price. We're going to look at both month over month price and yearly, so year over year price. And this is using Canadian Real Estate Association data, which comes out on the 15th of every month. This is what's called CREA stats they publish. The top three markets by price are Bancroft, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, and Fredericton. And the bottom three markets are all in Ontario. <laughs> Actually, the bottom 10 markets are all in Ontario. So stay tuned to find out what they are. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. We're also going to be going to review and analyze a couple of news articles from the past month and try and keep people up to date on real estate news. And the headlines that we're going to be covering this month are, number one, Canadians saw their net worth fall by nearly $1 trillion, the biggest drop in history. Number two, Offsy is very worried about Canadians' finances. And number three, developers are hitting pause on new housing construction. So I'm looking forward to this. That's going to be a good one for sure. It is. And you know what? I, uh, while scouring the internet for some good stories, some very relevant and stories that I think our, our listeners can get some value out of, I tried to look for her some positive headlines out there. And you know what? It is like finding a diamond in the rough right now. So unfortunately, the stories we're covering aren't jam-packed full of good news, but it is news that you should be aware of. So that's why they're here. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the podcast here, I do have one little story that I'd like to start things off with. So I saw a clip a few weeks ago, actually, someone sent it to me a few weeks ago about podcasts, and it resonated with me. And I was looking forward and saving this story until we hit our 21st episode, which is this episode. So Although it might seem like a strange milestone, apparently it's a pretty big one. So here we go. 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. Of that 90% that do, 90% of those don't make it past episode 20. So if you make it to episode 21 in the podcasting world, you are now in the top percent of all podcasts in history. Woo! We're now part of that club, baby. Congratulations, Dan. Congratulations. 21 episodes. So kind of funny, uh, in my opinion, kind of ridiculous because 21 episodes really doesn't seem like that much. You know what I mean? If I said I have $21, okay, that's not that much. But if I said I ate 21 chocolate bars, you might be concerned for my health. But I think the major lesson that I want to take out of this is that consistency beats talent. And not to say that you and I aren't talented, but we're no means the most talented guys in in the country to possibly be executing the show. But you know, we've done it and we've done it 21 times and we did it more than 21 times before that. So I think this is a good thing for investors to think because this is the mentality that we all need is that consistency. That's the mentality that all business owner needs. And it's the mentality that we all need to navigate through this challenging market. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I know, I think you're much more of a mindset guy than I am, but I, I like it. I think it's good. It's a nice perspective to really just think about the resilience required in, especially in a shitty market like the one that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I might use that as a as a segue to, to jump into <laughs> the doom and gloom that we're seeing in the news headlines now. And I think it's kind of interesting just that the narrative, I would say a lot of these media outlets are probably more bearish leaning, but the narrative shift even at the more bull case real estate news groups are already shifting towards more more bearish narratives. So, are you sure? I saw something on TikTok that everything's going to be okay. I yeah yeah. <laughs> I think well, it's been going to be better than okay on TikTok. Right. I think it's <laughs> uh, it was, we're we're about to head into the biggest bull run ever ever known. So, it's interesting just from my perspective because I think at least from the individuals that I've researched and listened to, the final piece of the puzzle that we haven't lost yet that that hasn't eroded yet in Canada is sentiment, right? Mm-hmm. I think you start to see a bottom forming when there's despair, when there's blood in the streets as people talk about. And I, I'm not trying to get an understanding for whether or not that's what's going to happen or trying to theorize whether or not I think that's what's going to happen. But I just look at everything, try and analyze it and see what trajectory we're on and how we can capitalize on any of these trends as investors, as real estate investors. Right. Yeah. Well said. Okay. So on that note, why don't you take the first article here? Sure. So better dwelling. Canadians saw their net worth fall by nearly $1 trillion, the biggest drop in history. And this isn't just from them. A lot of other agencies have, or a lot of other media outlets have, have had commentary along the same line. So Statistics Canada reported that household net worth made a sharp drop in Q2 of 2022. That decline was actually the largest in history, coming in at nearly $1 trillion. Now, I think that also, if you look at the Q1 increase in household net worth, it was likely the same, record high. So you have to take a lot of these big swings in volatility with a grain of salt. The quarterly drop was the largest on record and annual growth was the smallest since 2018. Most households aren't hurting from the record drop since it followed record gains, which is what I was saying. Last quarter's net worth was still 26.9% higher than Q1 2020 when interest rates were first cut. So I don't think that this is, firstly, a lot of this is paper gains being erased. So it's not cash that people would have realized. If everybody wanted to try and realize those gains, it would have caused a crash as well because they all would have sold their houses and then prices would have come down. It's a little bit sensational. It is obviously extreme. And and to see wealth destruction of that nature sucks. But Mm. to me, this isn't the material major impact that we're seeing. That's not money that people likely would have spent. I think to me, the bigger two macro indicators to watch are, are we still continuing to pile on debt, which... We are, and our household savings beginning to dwindle as a result of increased capital costs, like people servicing their mortgages that are becoming more expensive each month. That's when you start to have cash coming out of consumption. You're hearing a lot of politicians, conservative and NDP especially, talking about how Canadians can't afford certain things, groceries, gas, etc. This is true. And mortgages increasing on a monthly basis isn't going to make that any better. And so eventually, the inability to afford things aggregates at compounds. And a lot of these people that have a large group of the population starts belt tightening or reducing their consumption, the economy as a whole suffers. And that's how you end up in a recession as a result of these things. So I, I think it's a, it's a metric. It's something 
that we're, we can see we're looking at, but I don't know if it's the piece. I think to me, the monthly debt service is what eventually starts to hurt Canadians and people only have to pay their mortgage once a month. Yeah, well said. And, and you know, I thought this article was important to include because as you said, this is getting a whole lot of media coverage right now. And I did think, you know, your, your point there of taking it with a grain of salt because these these major dips come after record highs, right? So I think that is a very important part to remember. Let's move on to the next article here from BNN titled, Offsea is, quote unquote, very worried about Canadians' finances. So the head of Canada's banking regulator, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, so that's OFSI, said he's worried about how higher borrowing rates will affect Canadian households and also relieved that the country's mortgage stress test was strengthened one year ago. So kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth right there, they're they're expressing concern, but they are happy that they put in the stress test. And I think a lot of people are going to be, are going to feel that sentiment as well. So effective June 1st of 2021, OFSI raised the bar for its minimum qualifying rate for the uninsured borrowers. And that's borrowers making a down payment of at least 20%, requiring them to prove they can handle a mortgage payments of either 5.25% of their contract rate plus two percentage points, whichever one was higher. So if you've listened to other episodes, Dan and I have talked about this extensively, this goes back to the stress test and the trigger rates. Dan, why don't you take the next couple points here and and we can discuss and unpack this article. For sure. So they announced on Monday that they would tighten the rules on certain types of real estate loans, such as reverse mortgages and HELOCs to further protect households from rising rates. I think the more interesting part, and they're not necessarily saying this explicitly, is that those are two credit products that are more, they're not purchase oriented so much. These are for people who already own. So this is, again, trying to claw back some of those options that people have to pile on debt into the existing asset, which is good. It's responsible and it's it may be productive in helping Canadians reduce that debt load. They say, but for now, we're on a schedule to review the mortgage stress test in December. We'll give it a clear-eyed look and make sure it adds to the resilience of Canadian housing system, said Peter Routledge, the head. I think that the other interesting piece of the puzzle here is that TREB, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and a lot of lobbyists in the real estate space have been pleading with OSFI to reduce the B20 stress test requirements to stimulate the housing market. And I honestly do think that eventually that will happen. I I really think it'll be a policy response to put a price floor into the housing market eventually. Can you unpack that a little bit? What What do you mean by that? So I think B20 was designed in such a way that it's easy to get rid of or reduce the qualifying rate or the stress test rate. And right now, we are hitting those stress test rates. We're pushing above. So anybody's qualifying, even on the variable side now, at that plus 2% rather than the 5.25. So buying power is actually being erased by the stress test on a, on a daily basis. And it's fulfilling, it's doing its job. And I think it has done a sufficient job at eliminating systemic risk. But it stifles growth in the housing market, which is a big part of our national GDP that we know. I think something like 10% of Canadian GDP is residential investment. So that's just real estate commissions and basically home renovations. And we will, as part of the recovery, depend on those on growth again in those parts of the economy, whether you like it or not. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing per se, but I think it's a necessary evil for Canadians to get back to work because with the rate that we're going on with rate hikes, et cetera, 
we won't be in an exceptionally good economic position a year from now. Mm-hmm. And so I would expect that you'll start to see pressure from other individuals in, in the government for OSFI to reduce that stress test to bring back, resurrect that buying power that's been erased by the stress test. So if they start reducing that qualifying rate back down as we think rates are going to start coming down or whatever signals them that it's safe again to start reducing that qualifying rate, then we've got buying power being added to the market and that'll start to stimulate demand. That to me would be one of the biggest bullish signals that could happen over the bullish catalyst that could happen over the next couple of years. And I, I think it will happen and I would watch closely to see when that does happen. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. And if you if anyone listening out there is is a little confused or wants a little more background information as to what the stress test is, what the trigger rate is, well, guess what? You're in luck. We did a whole episode on it. So go back and listen to episode 13, Understanding Your Mortgage Stress Tests and Trigger Rates. They are the hot topic right now. Okay, let's move on to the next story here, the next article actually from Stories, another great real estate-focused media outlet. The title being Developers Hitting Pause on Housing Construction. So early signs suggest that the pace of home building is falling off. If anyone's been listening to the media or paying attention recently, I think this has not come as a surprise. This is sparking concerns about what even a temporary pullback means for affordability. The long-term demand is not going away, says Dave Wilkes, president and CEO of BILD, B-I-L-D, which represents the greater Toronto area's construction and development industry. So, Dan, we've got some ongoing construction projects ourselves right now, so we'll get into those after. I just want to read this next clip here. A new national survey from the real estate consulting agency, Altus Group, suggests some developers are beginning to shelve would-be condo projects because of higher interest rates. Some 33% of developers polled for the survey say pausing at new condo or rental projects is among their responses to the changing interest rate environment. I can tell you projects are being delayed, quote by Colin Johnson, the president of research from Eltis Group here. So some very interesting things here. I like the I like how the developers are being extra diplomatic and saying, hey, look, we're not canceling it. It's just on pause for the next little while. But Dan, why would why are we going to see developers pausing, pulling back? Why does the interest rates have a direct correlation with that? And what does that mean for housing affordability? So within the same breath of what Altis is mentioning here, at the most recent real estate forums, they also posted that developer profit margins are at record lows. So there's a clear correlation in Canada between the interest rate and housing start. So for every 1% or 100 basis point increase that we see in the overnight rate, you see a 4% decrease in new housing starts in Canada. Wow. This is because it's an incredibly credit-dependent supply chain. The housing supply chain, it's not so much like the US, it's getting there, but it's not so much like the US where these developers are issuing bonds or major credit market or financial market products to fund a lot of these deals. They're doing if they are doing that, they're doing it through another financial institution, which would be a big six bank or a non-bank financial institution like Desjardins, etc. And Desjardins is actually quoted in this article. The alternative title for this article is how much is riding on the fall real estate market. And I think that that actually is Almost more of the the big question here is we know, and we're going to cover this a lot in the CREA updates, which we're about to get to, but new listings are trending down. 
but sales to new listings ratio is trending up. But we're still seeing a pile of of inventory, even though absorption is is getting better. So more properties are selling in relation to the number of new ones that are being listed, but not enough new ones are being listed. So a lot of people or not as much new ones are being listed. So a lot of individuals, even in the resale market, are adapting this or adopting this wait and see mentality that we're seeing developers doing. Eventually, if you have a lot of people on the supply lines that on the sidelines and the supply pipeline, that could create a potential for pent up supply, right? If a lot of people are waiting to see what's going to happen and then what happens isn't good and now they're racing for the exit, that is not necessarily a good scenario. Not something I necessarily foresee happening, but that would be the risk with a lot of this pent up supply mm-hmm. being pushed by people waiting and seeing. So the fall market, this is going to become really important. And that was actually my takeaway from reading these Korea updates. So why don't we actually maybe just use that to jump into the Korea updates and I'll explain why that's important based on the data. So do you want to give me the highlights here on the the Korea updates, Nick? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So national homes edged down by 1% on a month over month basis in August. Actual, not seasonally adjusted, but actual monthly activity came in at 24.7% below August of 2021, so below August of last year. The number of newly listed properties dropped by 5.4% month over month. The MLS HPI, which is the Home Price Index, edged down 1.6% month over month, but was still up 7.1% year over year. That's an interesting one. And the actual, again, not seasonally adjusted, but the actual national average sale price posted a 3.9% year-over-year decline in August. So that's, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems like a fairly sharp drop for for just a a year-over-year in August. Am I wrong to think that? It's it's not major given that we've seen in some markets 20% drops from since the rate hiking cycle has started. So it's not a massive year-over-year decline. The bigger part is that it's a decline. And I think there's a couple of big takeaways here from my perspective. So the national price being down at 3.9% year-over-year, but every province except Ontario is actually up year-over-year. Oh, come on. So- why, right. Why is it always to, us? <laughs> well, Ontario ruins everything. But to to further understand that, Ontario only went down 1%. So if you're doing the math in your head, this doesn't even actually make sense. And I posted this hmm. on TikTok and people were like, that algebra literally doesn't check out. But it does when you consider that Ontario last year had 140,000 real estate transactions and there were 667,000 transactions in Canada. So Ontario was about 20% of all residential transactions in 2021. And then in July and August of this year, Ontario had record low volume and prices have been decreasing substantially since the rate hiking cycle started in Ontario. So these price and volume swings were so massive and other areas in Canada were growing simultaneously that it actually skewed the average nationally just due to the weight of Ontario's market in that data set. This to me really shows how easily the average metric can be skewed and why it's why I don't really like using averages, especially not with these massive national data sets. The national data set is very qualitative. It's this living, breathing thing, right? We know in real estate, the principle is location, location, location. And so we have to think about these things on a much more market to market basis. The only other piece I want to touch on there, which I mentioned is we have two things happening. So residential sales activity 
other than Q2 of 2020, which was the lockdown, the you know the famous first lockdown of the global pandemic, July and August 2022 nationally were the lowest seasonally adjusted number of sales. They're more on par with a Q1, like a January, a slow January or December, which are when the markets really not a lot of transactions are taking place. So there's that element. The other piece, and I'm pulling all of these charts up, by the way, if you look at creastats.crea.ca, if you go to that domain, if you look at it on your on your mobile device, it only shows you two charts typically. But if you go to it on a on a desktop, a laptop, whatever it is, there's quite a few more charts. So I would encourage you to look at these. So the one that I just referenced was residential sales activity for Canada. The next one I'm going to look at here is residential new, new listings, which is below it. And you can see that re- the number of new listings is trending down since Q2 of 2022. So if you seasonally adjust that on a monthly basis, July and August are lower than those months. So we are getting back into a low supply market and low supply markets can drive prices up if demand is sustained. So, and this is an important piece of the puzzle. So the next piece is if you look at the residential market balance in Canada, sales to new listings ratio and months of inventory are charted on the same chart. The months of inventory is trending up. So some it's not just new listings that matter. It's also listings that are still on the market. And now it's taking longer and longer for homes to sell. So we know that inventory can eventually pile up. Like Nick, some of these deal of the day listings that we've been looking at, mm-hmm. we've seen them sitting for 90, 100 days. Yeah. You you wouldn't see that in the past two years. It was, it was rare in 2021 or 2020. It was rare to see a property on the market for more than 10 days. Yeah, and so, they were some of them were gone in wars. hours. <laughs> right. And so- I was saying when this turnover first started in February that the big thing to watch, the first thing to watch was absorption because it was very easy to double how quickly it took to sell a house. So a house used to take seven days to sell. Now it takes, all it needs to take is 14 days to sell. So if it takes two weeks rather than one week because the bidding wars failed, then you've just doubled your absorption period. And then now the piling up of inventory, that excess supply that where properties are, aren't being sold, they're just sitting in the market. That starts to, to have an impact because now buyers can shop around. So that's element number one, right? Supply is beginning, is beginning to pile up. We're seeing the months of inventory growing. It's, it's not growing as fast as it was, but it's definitely growing. At the same time, the sales to new listings ratio is increasing, which means that there's not a lot of new supply coming on, but there is a lot of older supply. And the new supply that is coming on, not as much of it was selling in the summer. And that's kind of climbing back up now because I think a lot of the the supply that's been sitting there has been picked over, right? People have shopped through it and they're like, I'm not, I'm not going to buy any of those houses. So once new listings come on, then they do tend to sell, right? So the market balance is looking more like a 2018, 2019 on this chart rather than, you know, if you look at this residential market balance chart, basically from the beginning of the pandemic, there was a dip and then it was running a sales to new listings ratio nationally above 70% almost. So basically 70% of new of the number of new listings were able to sell within a, in a month. And it's not obviously okay. not direct. It's not to say that. So, so it's, yeah. Interesting. So to me, again, seeing how that all takes shape in the fall is important. So I heard a few things in there. And one of the things I wanted to ask is, are we heading into, I know there's three types of markets, right? Buyer's market, seller's market, balanced market. Is what you're saying, are we trending towards, are we arriving in a 
seller's market or are we now in balanced market territory trending the wrong way? I think we've been in a balanced market territory for a while. I don't think that we will get into a buyer's market unless we see a massive supply flood, which I mentioned. And I think that that's possible if the price velocity continues downwards in a meaningful way, or if people start to see these year-over-year declines continuing, then there might be people who will say, you know what, I got some padding here. If prices are going to keep going down, I might just sell this and see what happens, right? So rather than the wait and see, it's liquidate and see what happens, (laughs) right? Because some people, if you're seeing prices continue to go down, you're like, okay, waiting wasn't the right option. I'm not being rewarded for waiting. Maybe I'll liquidate and where a lot of people are, are investors that have this investment mentality, the speculation mentality. So they want to liquidate, have a nice bag of cash for the recession that's upcoming as an example, because they think better buying opportunities will be ahead. I wonder how many investors that are liquidating actually liquidate into a bag of cash. That sounds great. I'm, I'm going to do that someday. Right. <laughs> Just a burlap right. well, sack actually, full of hundreds. As an update, my my deal finally closed. Hey, uh, congratulations. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so. So yeah. you have your so you have a bag of cash right now, a physical bag of cash. I might have already spent it all like months <laughs> month, months prior, and I'm just going to be paying off lines of credit. No, that's I'm just, I'm kind oh, of joking. I was going to say it better not be a HELOC. You'll have you'll have some nasty emails coming in about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I uh, I don't really use lines of credit. I've committed myself to a couple of deals, so I was just really grateful to to get have this deal closed because I have to use the the capital to fund those deals, and I have to start a renovation on a duplex that I'm doing as well. So I thought you were going to anyway. go out and buy a sports car immediately when you. That's what you said. No. Oh no, no that's no. some other guy. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm a pickup truck. I will get a sports car eventually. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Let's. Uh, are we good to dive into some of the stats here? Yeah, give me the best performing monthly. So this is month over month in August. What were the the best performing markets? Wow. Okay, these percentages aren't what they used to be. Full disclosure. Topping off the list. Wow, look at that. Which is crazy. Is Ontario? We've got Bancroft at plus one point one percent. So. We're still on top, I guess. To be fair though, like Bancroft is actually, if you look at the price chart for Bancroft, it literally looks like a crypto. Like it looks like it could oh, be dear. whatever that Dogecoin or whatever. <laughs> it, it's literally a, a shitcoin, basically. We don't mean any offense to anyone living in Bancroft. We actually love it up there. So uh, for our no, Bancroft but pr- listeners, <laughs> don't take It's offense. actually funny because no, it will. It, it returns me to, I love Bancroft. It's a be- one of the most beautiful places in the country, but it's funny because it reiterates that point I was trying to make about averages not being exceptionally accurate totally. because Bancroft yeah. just isn't a big enough market to be tracked by the HPI. So its price chart looks so volatile. One house sells, it spikes, another one sells, it dips, another one sells. And- well, and it also, you can see it taking very seasonal cycles. Again, talking about those, those so we're, we're talking about how the fall market's going to be important because in most urban areas, spring and fall are when most people transact houses because families want to close either in the winter or in the summer between school semesters. Bancroft is completely opposite because it's cottage country basically for the Ottawa area. And so it has a huge summer cycle. And so August is going to be a great month for it. And it appears that that's the case. So it was one of only two markets that actually went up in price. What was the other one? There we go. 1.1% for Bancroft. Okay. In a distant second, we've got St. John's Newfoundland at 0.7% as the only other positive. (laughs) Wow. Newfoundland at a straight 0.0%. Saskatoon at a Minus 0.1%, PEI at a minus 0.4%, 
Brantford, again, another Ontario spot at minus 0.9%. Kingston and area at minus 1%. Regina, Calgary, and Oakville all tied at 1.1%. Wow, you don't see Oakville and Regina usually in the same sentence. That's interesting. And then Vancouver Island. And that's negative 1.1%. That's sorry, negative 1.1%. Yes. And then Vancouver Island and Winnipeg, another odd couple right there at minus 1.5%. So those are our winners, which is which is kind of sad because out of those two, four, six, eight, nine, ten, there's only two positives. So do what you will with that information. Right. Now, Dan, let's hear what uh, the worst performing monthly month over month markets were. Yeah, for sure. And this is interesting because I had said a couple of episodes ago, I think on our first Korea stats that I think Ontario probably had most of its destruction was behind it, except for some areas that were holding strong. I felt Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury, et cetera, and some of the more fringe areas that weren't, weren't being as impacted as badly as the greater Toronto area or the greater Golden Horseshoe. Now we're starting to see a lot more of these national names show up in the worst performing monthly. And Ontario is actually almost settled and it's trading sideways a little bit. I do think there's still a little bit of downside left in Ontario. But like I said, I think that the worst is behind us. I don't think we're going to see another 20% six-month shed in the GTA. Sure hope not. Be painful. So the worst performing month, the monthly markets in August were Nova Scotia at minus 3.7%, Halifax at minus 4 Niagara at minus four, Rideau St. Lawrence at minus 4.2. That's just outside of Ottawa there. Woodstock Ingersoll in Ontario at minus 4.3. Berrien District at minus 4.3. Guelph at minus 4.4. Sault Ste. Marie, Fraser Valley, and North Bay. So two of my Northern Ontario and then Fraser Valley and BC, all three at minus 4.5%. St. John, New Brunswick at minus 4.7%. Sudbury at minus 5.3% for Sudbury. And Chilliwack and District coming into the bottom spot, the worst market last month and month over month change was minus 6.4%. So again, we're starting to see some of that pain spread outside of just the Ontario market. And this is something that I had, I mean, you and I had predicted this. I don't like to toot our own horn, but we're trying to create value here. We're trying to show people that, and, and we're, my big thing was, the credit-dependent markets are going to feel the changes in credit first. And so now we're starting to see it happen in less credit-dependent markets because sentiment starts to spread. People are seeing markets in other parts of the country not being – you don't have to FOMO in. You don't have to rush. Inventory is starting to pile up. And so that sentiment starts to spread and buyers start to control the market a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nick. Year to date. This is what, from my perspective, is really important because we started the beginning of the year at a really high price. This is almost peak to trough. I started in January, but the peak technically happened for some markets, February or March. But year to date, what are the top markets in Canada so far? I'll get to that. I just love how I've gotten the, I get to read out the top markets and the best performing yeah, month, <laughs> month over month. And then you take the the worst performing. It's fitting. It's fitting. Yeah, people don't see me wearing my bear costume in the studio here. <laughs> Okay, year to date, the top Canadian markets. Bancroft again at 14.5%. That's actually plus 14.5%. PEI at 13.1%. Fredericton, New Brunswick, 12.8%. Windsor, 11.4%. Sault Ste. Marie at 10.6%. Nova Scotia at 10.3%. Halifax at 9.4%. And Newfoundland at 7.9%. Wow, East Coast is slapping. Look at that. PEI, Fredericton, Nova Scotia, Halifax, and Newfoundland. Holy. 
Yeah. So on the year to date, they're doing great. Yeah. They've seen a lot of growth, but they are starting to unwind a little bit. We're seeing them show up on the month over month declines, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so year to date, the worst markets I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the worst markets are all in Ontario. So I don't even know if I need to bore anybody with the (laughs) list, but it it might make you feel better about how your market is performing if you're seeing price declines in you know, the, the respective market that you're in. And if you listen and if you listen in Ontario, just maybe stop the episode here and uh, tune in next week. Yeah, hit that fit, skip the next 30 seconds button yeah. or whatever it yeah. is. So Mississauga is down 18%. Hamilton is down 18.7%. Cambridge is down 20%. Oakville Milton is down 20.5%. Kitchener Waterloo now down 21.7% year to date. And London St. Thomas down 22.5% from the beginning of the year. And Yikes. this is, this isn't even considering the peak in, in February or March, which I don't know if peak to trough is necessarily that important at this point because you're really just rubbing it in the faces of the people who <laughs> bought it in those peak months and we don't want to do that. So those are the markets that are now have come down the most. I think we picked, did we pick, we picked a city from the top market list. We did. We did. For our deal of the day today. We did. And But before we get there, I do want to say, I just want to have a quick chat about some of these markets because there's you know, going back to this this term, I'm I'm not really trying to coin, but but consistently using the kangaroo market because you see stats like this. We talk about stats like this; they're all over the media, and they grab people's attention. And then I start talking to all of my realtor friends who are telling me they're getting 17 offers on a place, 22 offers on a rental, 15 offers on places all over the GTA, in as well as in Vancouver. So we're still seeing. The good, like the cream of the crop stuff is still selling up over asking with multiple offers. It's a really strange market that we're in. And and I'm wondering if you just have any, a quick piece of commentary on, on that, Dan, as to why we're seeing, you know, these major dips. Hamilton, for instance, let's use that. Hamilton down 18.7%. Then I'm talking to Hamilton agents and they're telling me there's stuff going over asking and bidding wars still. Yeah, I think that you can use some stock market psychology here a little bit and- there are such things as bear market rallies. And I think that also, and I'm not trying to be too bearish here to say this, but the reality is we are in the middle of an unwinding of a large credit cycle, a absolutely massive supersized credit cycle, the biggest that we've ever seen in Canada and the highest household indebtedness that we've ever seen in Canada. And I'm not saying this to scare people, but to think that this is over, that the bottom has come and gone would be a little bit irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And the bottom the bottom is going to be long. There'll be a long and flat bottom as the market continues to unwind itself and the people who are in pain need to offload that pain and the people who are in good positions are rushing back into the market. If you look at any past market cycle, to assume that it came and went in six months' time would be very naive. Uh, even if you go as recently as, 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 you know, if you're talking about Hamilton as an example, if you go as recently as 2017, Nick, mm-hmm. right? We saw yeah. policy influence push prices down, but we also saw interest rates climbing during that period of time. And I've said this a couple of times. I, I think that our market would have peaked in 2017 and not seen another peak until the next cycle had COVID not happened and monetary policy dropped rates basically to, to zero. And 2017, it took about six months to go from peak to trough. So April till August, I think, in in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. And almost something identical happened in Vancouver from 2016. We saw about 20 20 to 30% drop in price. And then 
the market basically traded sideways until COVID started. Both of those markets, BC and Ontario. And so, yeah, I think you're going to see bear market rallies. I think you're going to see even a bull trap forming in this fall market. It wouldn't surprise me actually, because what happens during a bear market rally is people say, oh man, we just weathered that storm. This market's invincible. (laughs) You get this irrational confidence in the market because if if it can weather that storm, then you should have confidence in that market. But I would just caution people that, and we covered this in our very first episode, episode number one, go look at past market cycles. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And look at what happened the last couple of times that it took years for the credit cycle to unwind in the Canadian housing market. And I, I would argue, and most people are arguing that these things happen faster in present day because the share of information is much faster and the the policy response and the delivery transaction times are way quicker. The underwriting time for mortgages is way quicker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, sure. Let's say we're 50% faster, 50% more efficient than those last markets. The 1990s, it took 12 years for prices to recover. In the 1980s, it took six, seven years to, for prices to recover. So, And it, that's a six-year bottom and a three-year bottom. So to think that, again, that it's going to happen in a couple of months is a bit naive. I think that we, we just have to, to look at it and, and don't think about capital appreciation. Don't think about what the market's going to do. The market's not going to go give you gains. That's not how real estate investing is done. That's called speculation. If you want to speculate, I would encourage you to do it in the stock market. But I don't think the real estate market is, a, is an especially good place to do that because speculation and credit do not go well together. And we're learning that right now. Yeah, well said. So in other words, settle in and adapt to the current market conditions and stay focused on the goal. And find good investments. Find investments that it doesn't matter whether or not the market's ripping. If you have to, if, if the only value proposition that the, inv- the real estate investment that you are making is that the market is going to go up, you're not buying the real estate investment. You're buying the market. Yeah, well said. And you know what? Are you set me up for a good segue here? Because that's pretty good. It might be. <laughs> All right. Well, I will take it and I will use it to go to the final segment of today's show, the deal of the day, which we're introducing. We it's a pretty simple process we've got here. We choose a, a market. Today, we chose Fredericton because year to date, it's one of the top markets sitting at 12.8%. So all I did here, typed in Fredericton into realtor.ca, clicked on the multifamily. There is very little inventory in Fredericton multifamilies at this point. So it's pretty easy to find. I believe there's only six listings. Went through a couple of them. I found one that I liked because it has been on realtor.ca for 92 days. That's usually one of the first things I look at days on market when I'm when I'm scoping realtor.ca and I think that's a pretty obvious reason why or the reasons sorry the reasons why are pretty obvious. So I'm just going to give a quick description of this home and then I'm going to let Dan do his thing on landlord and tell you if it's a good deal or not. So 248 Saunders Street in Fredericton, New Brunswick, MLS number NB074242. As I said, it is on the market now for 92 days. It's a triplex. Uh, I'll just take some excerpts from the description here. Three sources of income, sitting in downtown Fredericton on a large lot, minutes from bus routes, universities, restaurants. The main level is a spacious two-bedroom, could be converted to three. The upper level features two other two-bedroom units. There's also two additional sheds for storage, mature trees, low vacancy and prime location make this a fantastic opportunity. The building is just under 2000 square feet. Okay. So you know what? Sounds 
pretty decent overall. I went through the pitchers. The pitchers are all nice. It really doesn't need any work from just the pitchers alone. Now, obviously, we all know pitchers can be deceiving. Realtors have gotten nice and sneaky, or I should say real estate photographers have gotten quite good at that. But Dan, I sent this listing over to you. You punched it in on Landlord. Why don't you tell the good folks listening a little bit about Landlord and the deal analyzer and why we love it. So I use the, the deal analyzer on landlord.io. You guys can check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Landlord.io slash C-R-E-I is Already there. our yep. personal link. And and it actually does – if you use our link, it will give you some of the tools that are typically hidden behind a paywall. So you have to pay for the they, – they give you those tools for free. And uh, this it will be among those for the Canadian set of tools. Is it the, Landlord's a, a – global company. They do real estate analysis and a lot of it in the UK as an example. What we did is we basically plug in this info. You plug in the price, you plug in the rent. That's really all you need to do. And it'll make a bunch of assumptions for what real estate assets are trading at in the Canadian space. It'll create a expense margin as an example. You can put in how you can decide how much cash you're putting down. In this one, we put 23.8%, I believe. That's including closing costs, et cetera, and down payment. And it spits out a cap rate of about 5.95%. So just shy of a six cap, which I like. I think is is actually maybe a little bit high for the New Brunswick market. So this, this is probably outperforming what a multifamily cap would be in that market. Cash on cash obviously isn't good because you're spending a lot of money servicing your mortgage. And so it's not a cash flowing investment. The cash on cash is only 2.99%. So your first year metrics aren't the cash on cash isn't going to be what you're buying this property for. The gross yield is is 8.02%. When you look at the long-term metrics, so one of the cool things about Landlord's Deal Analyzer is it also creates that long-term pro forma that I mentioned in our best metrics to use episode, which is a couple of episodes ago. Nick can probably give you the exact episode number, but the internal rate of return is 8.82%, which isn't a super juicy IRR. Like I'm typically seeing deals that are 20 plus IRRs on the development space, but IRR isn't really a investment buy and hold strategy metric. The equity multiple after 10 years would be about 2.16%. Again, that's kind of more of a more of a development metric, but the long-term ROI on this deal, so the cash that you put in is 116.32% over 10 years, 116.32%. I think that's probably it. I think yeah. that's everything that we need to cover there. And that's that's making the assumption of a 95% occupancy rate. So again, you could plug in market vacancy, etc. There's so many different little levers that you can pull to make these deal analyzer tools really fun. You can get as in-depth or as high level. You know, again, uh, the thing I love a lot, I'm, I'm a big cash flow guy. So it shows you the net annual cash flow and your monthly cash flow, which again, Dan, you said isn't great on this. I did a quick bit of research, found out two bedrooms usually rent for a thousand, threes, 1500. So we throw the monthly rent in there. And then you can do, you can play around with the purchase price. So, okay, you know, what is cash on cash or IRR or long-term ROI? How does that change if I don't get it for $4.99? I get it for $4.50 or $4.25. So we have been using this extensively for, you know, I've run all my own deals through here, all the properties I currently own to see if they're still good deals. And yeah, I'd urge any of our listeners to go click that link in the show notes and start having some fun with it. Absolutely. Man, this was a good episode. I uh, I really enjoyed this. I think we covered a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, agreed. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will talk to you in a couple of days. Talk soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. 
Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.